coffee and whatever else might keep you going for the morning. But let's go ahead and gather up here. Mark. Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. It's good to hear everybody fellowshipping this morning. Sure hope you guys are having a a good day so far. Do you guys think of Sunday as the first day of the week or the last day of the week? Do you think of it as the first? How about first? See, I, I, I am definitely in the last day of the week camp. So maybe it's part of um, the, maybe it's part of being a pastor. The, the Sunday is kind of the culmination of the week rather than the start of the week. And so um, perhaps that's sort of what it is. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to study verses 14 through 29. And if I could have uh, Lakin, please shut that door back on the left. That would be helpful. Thank you. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Before we read it, I want us to see a couple things from how Mark is constructing this passage. Let's, I had you turn to Mark 9, 14, but I, just glance back at chapter 9, verse 2. Look, look, look at verse 2. Um, some of you have a heading in your Bible, and you already know what that will be. That's the transfiguration, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Here's this literal mountaintop experience for Peter, James, and John, and Jesus has his, um, the robe of his humanity is subsumed uh, to who he really is, and they see Jesus for what he is, and they have this amazing experience with Jesus on top of the mountain. Now flip your page over and go down to verse 33 and see how Mark is putting this together. It says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so here we have this really low point in the disciples' journey. Um, This isn't the the last time they'll have this debate. They're going to argue about this again, and it's uh, really shameful of them. And they always seem to pick the worst possible moments to have these arguments about who the greatest is or who the greatest will be. So on the one hand, early in the chapter, we have this mountaintop experience of Jesus being transfigured. Peter is the type of person, and perhaps you have a friend like this, who always um, talks first and thinks second, okay? And, and maybe if you have a really good friend like that, as soon as this friend starts talking, you, it's like everything in you just wants to throw yourself in front of that friend and get them to close their mouths because what they're about to say is not going to look well for your friend. And, and, but you love your friend, and so you just sort of shake your head and, and hope they learn next time. And, uh, but, but that's what Peter does. Is he's, he's at this experience, and he says, Oh, this is so wonderful, Lord. So wonderful. Let, let, let's build three tabernacles, one for uh, Moses, one, one for Elijah, because they're talking to him, and one for you. And in one fell swoop, Peter lowers the Lord Jesus Christ to a human level. And suddenly a cloud descends over them and a loud voice shouts out, this is my son, listen to him. Not to Moses, not to Elijah. Yes, listen to them, but listen to my son first and foremost. 
He is superior to them. He explains them. Don't you see what's happening here? And Peter suddenly understands to an all greater degree who he's dealing with. And then again, at the end of this chapter, we have this sad scene of the disciples arguing over who's the greatest when they know good and well that they're in the presence of the great one. But sandwiched in between this high and this low is this event that kind of informs us about both of them. We have this event that shows us who Jesus really is, but it also shows us how incapable the disciples can be. And I hope you can see this sort of transitional story between this high point and this low point. So let's pick up our reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 15. Let's go down to verse 14, rather. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus had come off the Mount of Transfiguration, and this is what they experience. They experience a great crowd around them, and they're about to see something that they don't like. It's sort of a splash of cold water on top of what was a wonderful moment uh, just prior. What did they see with this great crowd? They saw scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what were you arguing about with him? The Pharisees and the scribes are silent with this argument because there's something that, someone that hasn't been pointed out yet. And someone from the crowd answered him. And turns out this is the man that's the great reason for this argument in many ways. And he says, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? That word faithless is an important one, which we will connect later. This is a story about faith. And we need to see that as we move forward. He says, oh, faithless generation. Let's see, I've got to find my place again. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. Again, that's our word faith, believe. In Greek, it's the same word. In English, our noun is sometimes faith, but the verb is believe, and the, but it's the same Greek word. It's the same Greek idea, believing or belief, having faith. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, 
This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We have in this passage all the makings of a really tragic story. We see this boy who has been affected by this demonic spirit. It causes him to be dashed to the ground and to convulse in uh, regular spasms. Now, I don't think there's anything, and we've got a few medical professionals in here, but for a non-medical professional, I don't think there's anything more disconcerting than when a person has a seizure. Those standing around are utterly powerless to stop it. And you realize very quickly what a life-threatening situation it is. I recall I was sitting at my desk one day. I, in a former life, had an office job. And one of the employees kind of came around the corner of cubicles. And I noticed, his name is Keith, I noticed that Keith started listing a little to the right. And suddenly, Keith just crashed into the cubicles. Uh, Keith was a big man, and so the cubicles uh, racked and fell back and forth and almost fell over on him. But given that it was a seizure that caused him to go down, he did not break his fall. The, he hit the cubicles and then went smack onto the ground. The first thing that hit, his, hit the ground after he kind of went into the cubicles was his nose. He likely got a concussion from the fall. He began to spasm violently. We ran over to him and rolled him over. We, we don't know what to do. We kind of laid him on his side because the foam was gathering in his mouth and we wanted to keep his airways open. Fortunately for us, the school where I was working, the, their public safety unit was in the same building. And so within a minute, EMTs were on the scene and they knew exactly what to do as far as giving him life-saving procedures. Before we knew it, an ambulance was there, and off Keith went. This, the, the seizure revealed a bigger problem that was going on with him health-wise, and praise the Lord, he recovered. But I have to say, if any of you have seen something like that, it sticks with you, doesn't it? It's terrifying. And this sort of scene happened to this boy all the time. I want us to see from the text very quickly how severe this problem was. The dad tells us that the spirit seizes him, and when it seizes him, verse 17, or verse 18 rather, it throws him down. This word throws him down, I, I, I don't know that that's the greatest translation. Let me tell you how this word is used in other contexts. Jesus says, nobody puts old wine into new wineskins because the old wine will expand the wineskins and make the wineskins, here's our word, do what? Burst. This word is a popular Old Testament word in the Psalter. It says that Israel's ladies were overwhelmed with God's glorious might. They were overwhelmed with his power. And so into praise they burst. They erupt into praise. 
That's our word. It says whenever the Spirit seizes him, the boy looks like he's about to pop. And I think we can imagine that from a medical standpoint. The boy likely holds his breath. The boy likely seizes literally every muscle. He spasms, and you just want the child to breathe. We're told later in the passage, as the father begins to paint this picture, when Jesus asks him about it, he says, how long has this happened? The man says in verse 21, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire, into the water, to destroy him. We're told that, and Jesus confirms this, of course, that this isn't a mere medical problem. This man could have had all the money in the world. There could have been as many medical advances in the ancient world as they wanted, but it wasn't going to help them because this was a demonic possession. And this demonic possession took hold of the boy to destroy him. This is the word for, this is the word apalumi. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Do you remember the violent creature that was trying to destroy Pilgrim? Do you remember his name? Apollyon, the destroyer. This is the word for the devil in the book of Revelation, the great destroyer. The, the goal, the stated purpose, apparently, of these demons is to utterly deface and destroy and immolate this child. This child, when he goes somewhere, it's, it's irrational. He sees a campfire, and he literally goes and throws himself on top of it. You say, okay, well, I'll keep the boy away from fire. So you do the opposite, and you get the boy near water. And what does he do? He runs in and tries to drown himself. And the dad begins to paint a really sobering picture that I think ought to give us a lot of Empathy, especially for parents who have children with severe special needs. The dad begins to paint a picture of a child who requires 24-7 care, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's all day, every day. The man says, I, I, I literally follow the boy around. And this happens so frequently. And what we begin to see is a picture of a dad whose life is wrapped up in the safety of the child. The dad's entire life consists of preserving this child from whatever imminent danger crosses his path. Imagine how exhausting that would be physically. Imagine how exhausting that would be. <laughs> we... My wife and I were marveling. We, we, have a, we, we, of course, don't face this situation. We face something of the opposite extreme. We have a daughter, a six-year-old daughter. And here's how I describe my precious Grace to people who don't know her. Grace was born on 10, and the knob broke off. <laughs> there's no 9. There's no 6. There's no 2. It's on 10 all the time. If she's happy, guess what it is? It's 10. If she's sad, she's angry, watch out, it's 10. When she wears herself out at night, she hates sleeping, by the way. She hates it because she thinks she's going to miss out on something. Because, again, she's on 10. And she just goes and goes and goes until she just goes. <laughs> and when she sleeps, it's 10 sleep, okay? 
And at the stroke of 7 o'clock, when she's not permitted to get out of bed until 7, at the stroke of 7, we hear her thundering down the stairs to grab her breakfast and start challenging the day because, again, she is on 10. It's exhausting to have a child on 10. (laughs) Only ever 10. Imagine how physically exhausting it would be on the negative side to have a child who was always near death. But I think there's a greater toll that this is taking. Imagine the emotional toll that this would take. Imagine waking up in the morning and watching your child asleep. And he looks like an angel there sleeping. You love the child. Your heart is bound up in the child. Perhaps the child bears scars from incidents where you got there a little late. But don't you think the nagging, gnawing fear would take hold of you when you realized, what if I'm too late today? What if today's the day I turn my back for one second and it's one second too long? I think we can only imagine the physical and emotional toil that it would take on a dad like this. He hears that there's a miracle worker in town, which I... I don't think we accurately appreciate. We have so many advances in modern medicine that we just sort of assume that the medical community can figure things out, and when they don't, it stands out as an exception. But imagine a world where you have a medical need and you you go see the doctor, and his advice is to take three chickens and wring their neck and wipe the child's hands with blood. And that will be the medicine your child needs to get better. That was the sort of superstitious cure that doctors, so-called doctors, they were essentially snake oil salesmen. Nobody ever cured anything. But to suddenly hear that there was a person nearby who actually healed real diseases, when your entire experience leading up to that point was that physicians did nothing but only took your money and made things worse, And if you followed their prescriptions to a T and they didn't work, they would somehow figure out a way to blame you for it. But suddenly, again, there bursts onto the scene a man who can do something about it. And so this man brings his boy, but wouldn't you know it, as providence would have it, he happens on the disciples the one day Jesus isn't there. No worries. The disciples think. There's nine of them. They think, well, Jesus has given us power over demons, and we've cast out many other demons before. Jesus gave us this. He has um, deputized us, in a sense, in this healing ministry. And so the man is now filled with hope, and he, he brings his child to the disciples, but they are unable to cast the demon out. They are unable to help. Perhaps you've had a sinking feeling in this way. 
you've gone to see a medical professional for an issue that's really bothering you, and they tell you, we have a procedure that is 98% effective. And you think, wow, I would bet 98% effective. This is going to help me. And you, you do the procedure, and lo and behold, you're in the 2% that it's ineffective for. And your hopes are crushed. Here you had so much hope invested in this healing balm, but it, for whatever reason, your situation, your scenario is uniquely bad. And you can get no help, no relief. This doesn't work for you, I'm sorry. Well, there's some Pharisees standing around. And they see that the disciples are incapable of casting out this demon. And so they begin to take the disciples to task. They begin to rub it in their faces that, they, that they're powerless. In fact, we're told in the passage, the man says that he comes to Jesus and he says, I brought my child to your disciples, he says, but they were unable to cast it out. I'm trying to find where he says that because it's actually a verse you might want to circle and fill out. Verse 18, it says, uh, so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. You might want to circle that word able. There is a Greek word for being able to do something and it's the word dunamis. Dun- uh, the, the verb form is, I believe, dunamao. It means to, to, to be able to do it. You, you can. You can do it. That's not the word here. It's not the word. It's literally the Greek word for strength. The Greek verb to have strength. He tells them, I brought them to your disciples, but your disciples were not strong enough. They did not have the requisite power or might to help me. That's the dad's assessment of it. That's Mark's assessment of it after he's been, after he's researched this. The disciples were incapable. They Yes, they were incapable, but the, the, the point which Jesus highlights later is they lacked the requisite spiritual strength to take care of something that was a spiritual problem. Jesus and the three other disciples are on top of this Mount of Transfiguration. It's this truly marvelous event. They come down the hill and they walk onto this awful scene Look up here, it says, and when they came to the disciples, verse 14, they saw a great crowd around them, and they were arguing with them. Go back to um, uh, verse 14. They saw a great crowd, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15, were greatly amazed. When the crowd saw him, this is actually the, the, it has the root in it for worship. So why was it when the crowd saw Jesus and the other three disciples that they marveled? It was just Jesus showing up on the scene. Most commentators think, and I, I would be of this opinion too, that because of the transfiguration experience, Something physically had been altered in the personage of Jesus. Something physically, perhaps like when Moses was face to face with God and his face would shine. And it was disturbing to the Israelites and they would have to cover it with a veil. 
that there was a, a temporary effect on the bearing of Jesus, that when people saw him, they, he, he was radiant, and they marveled, and they ran to him, and here's this hard case, here's this difficult situation. Jesus sort of comes onto this scene that's ugly. He was here on this mountaintop experience, and now he's, he's cast down, as it were, where you've got arguing men and a despairing dad and a boy convulsing on the ground and foaming at the mouth, and suddenly there's all this fallenness around him. And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to put up with you? Now that sounds like a really harsh response, doesn't it? It does. I think, I think we have to understand it in the light of two points of context. The first was what Jesus had just come down from. And the second point was that there apparently was some deficiency in the disciples in their understanding of who actually was casting out those demons. The disciples had become convinced that they were the ones responsible for it, that it was their might, their power, their words. And they had neglected to seek the Lord's power through prayer. And as Jesus reminded them that this kind can only be cast out through prayer, it's I don't think it was probably the case where the disciples deliberately neglected prayer. But how often do we deliberately neglect prayer? How often do we wake up and we say, I'm just not going to pray today, period. I think far more frequently what happens is we go to lay our head on the pillow and we say to ourselves, I neglected to pray today. But doesn't that show something about us? Because think of all the other things that you want that are relatively immaterial that you make happen. Think about your favorite show that you want to make sure you record on your DVR. It happens, doesn't it? And you will stop your day midstream to make sure you click record. I am an avid watcher of sports. I can tell you, many times I have called my wife in a panic. The game starts in 20 minutes. Make sure you record it. <laughs> this was back before I could do it with my phone. Now I just pull my car over off the side of the road and do it from my phone. You guys are smiling because I think you've done this too. If you like your coffee in the morning, you run out. You, you have just enough for today. Guess what appears in the pantry before tomorrow morning? Guess what you remember to do? You have your cream and your sugar and your coffee, and it's all there set for you. Why? Because you want it. You really, really want it. And for some of us, we need it. All these things that we really care about end up happening, don't they? But by pure neglect, 
by pure lack of need, I think we can second with these disciples that it's so easy to forget the most needful thing. And Jesus very gently rebukes them. You, you, you didn't, you forgot the fundamental element that you needed God's power. And, and Jesus comes down to this scene and in a sense, what he's saying is, all of this was avoidable if you had only remembered the words that I'd told you. If you had only sought me, sought the Lord in prayer, this could have been different. Well, the dad comes up to Jesus, and this is very important. I want us to actually see this. Look at your text. This is super important. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, uh, verse 22, and it, the man's explaining, he says, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Everybody see that word help? Okay. There are a few different words for help in the Greek language. One is a simple assistance. Can you lend me a hand? Or I, I need an extra hand for this job. Or I, I, need, I need a few extra dollars. Can you help me out? And, and these, are, these are common little helps that you would give to anybody. That's not the word that's being used here. There's, and I, and I think we understand that, right? There's another form of help, which we understand, that is more intense by nature. I was out four-wheeling four with my dad several years ago, and he had an accident on the four-wheeler. And I, he, he broke his back. And I gently drug him under a tree so that he would have some shade. I gave him some water. And I said, don't move. And he said, don't worry. <laughs> I said, I'm going to get some help. Well, what did I mean by that? I'm going to go down and ask somebody, hey, can you give me a hand? The next car that drove by, I literally stood in the middle of the road and made him either stop or run over me. And I said, my dad had an accident. Can you give him a ride to the bottom? And I said, we're in kind of a hurry. I said, my dad had an accident. He is very badly hurt. Can you give him a ride to the bottom? And they said, sure. What was I asking them? There's an emergency. Deliver life-saving help now. That's the word being used here. If you can do anything, can you deliver life-saving help for my boy? And Jesus says, if I can. Jesus, isn't, Jesus knows what he's going to do. And Jesus commends this dad. It's, it's already been demonstrated that Jesus cares. He's listened to the dad. He came up and talked to the dad. As the boy is having a convulsion, you can almost see the Lord kneeling over and putting his hand on the boy, and he's talking to the dad about this condition 
The Lord didn't need to know all of these things. The Lord was querying the dad so that the dad would verbalize it and everybody else would hear just how severe the problem was. And Jesus says, if I can, to sort of raise the dad's awareness that this is a spiritual problem and you have a spiritual need and there's a spiritual solution and the disciples were failing spiritually and there's a spiritual solution for them too. And the man says something beautiful and I think this is what Jesus was trying to draw out of him so that everybody else would hear. Do you remember our word, deliver emergency aid? Look at what the dad says. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible for him who believes. And immediately, there's this, there's this burst of helplessness. The father of the child cried out, I believe, and here's our word again, deliver emergency aid to my unbelief. The dad is saying to the Lord that my faith is in just as much need of emergency intervention as my boy is physically. My soul is in great danger. Help me. I want to believe. Help me. And wouldn't you know it, that is enough. That's enough. That's enough faith to get the Lord to move on your behalf. Lord, I know I don't see how you're going to do this. Lord, I don't see how you're going to break through. I, I'm admitting to you right now that my view of you is too small. And it's clear that my faith needs just as much help as this situation does. Can you help both? And what does Jesus do? He heals the boy immediately. And Mark goes to pains to show us just how dramatically and immediately Jesus takes charge of this situation. It's emphatic. I myself, Jesus says to the demon, I myself command you to leave and never come back again. It's so dogmatic. It's so forceful. And what Mark is trying to communicate to us here that when we cry out to the Lord in that sort of desperation for his emergency assistance and to our faith, to our regard of him, Jesus takes personal charge of that situation and moves toward you to help your belief and to help your situation. And Jesus, in a sense, begins to shoulder it all by himself and take command. It's so humorous how fickle people are. They see a glowing man come down from the mountain. He casts a demon out. The boy falls down asleep and they go, oh, he must be dead. Like, how little do they think of Jesus? <laughs> so the boy must be dead. Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. Jesus 
innocence brought the dead back to life. He wasn't physically dead, but this is a child who would never, ever have a normal life. He survived this harrowing encounter. And there Jesus is both mighty and tender all at the same time. Moving toward this situation with resolve and fortitude at the request of a dad who admits he doesn't have enough faith. The disciples, of course, are a bit perplexed. Why couldn't we help the boy? In verse 29, Jesus says, this, can't, this kind, this type, um, I'm trying to remember, I don't recall the Greek word, but basically this, uh, this species of demon, this type. This was a hard case, Jesus admits. This type of hard case cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so if we established that this is a story about faith, which it is, then where does prayer fit into that grid? Well, it's this, that, faith, that prayer is sort of the main flower of faith. Prayer is the main proof of faith. Prayer that gets prepared ahead of time demonstrates an abiding faith. And so this year we've made we've wanted to be praying for our body. On Mondays we pray our prayer passage. We have prayer partners, and we pray, if you stick with the schedule, pray for your prayer partners on Tuesday. And I would really strongly encourage you to exercise your faith and keep at this praying. It's an exercise of faith, isn't it? How, how many of us have prayed for something? We've prayed for the same thing for years, and we haven't exactly seen an answer yet. Or... Perhaps what we're seeing is, okay, there's this thing we're praying for, right? The target. And that remains unmoved, but what we start seeing is everything around it moving. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? You start to see everything around it moving. And then you realize, oh, maybe this thing is simply a foil for God to do many other things. Let, let me give... A, f a very quick example, because I'm, I'm getting some blank looks. Okay? For years, we prayed that the Penningtons would be able to get a home. We didn't know how that was going to happen, but we were praying for it. And so then the idea popped in our head to build a parsonage, but for how long? Two years? They still didn't have a home. But what happened? All the stuff around them started to move. People started to move. Things started to move. Things started getting built. And lives got moved all around and shifted all around while this need remained unmet. Until finally, once all that other stuff happened, the need was met. And what we see is this, this need ended up becoming an event through which God did a thousand other things. 
And this is, this sometimes is why God delays to answer your single request. So keep praying in faith. Because it could be that God wants to do a zillion other things before he meets the one thing. And I think the dad of this special needs child would admit to that. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to exercise our faith unto believing prayer? And each of us here face, each of, here, each of us here faces a situation that causes us to doubt that you can help it. We sort of know in theory that you can, but we've ceased to believe that you want to. And so I pray that you would deliver that emergency aid to that sort of unbelief where we begin to assume that you don't really want to help or that you don't, you really can't help. So may we continue to overcome in prayer with faith as we seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.